All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucksters? What the fuckadelics? This is Mark Marin. This is WTF the podcast. Thanks for joining me. If you're new to it, welcome. Welcome. It's nice to have you. I'll be uh, piping into your head twice a week or, or however often you want to do it. It could be uh, every day for hours a day if you're just getting started and you're dipping into those archives. First, I'll tell you who's on the show. Uh, we have a couple of guests. We're going to do a, a shorty with uh, Jonathan Ames, uh, the, uh, the, the famous writer, once a memoirist, now a novelist, and also a showrunner and show creator. Did uh, a Bored to Death series for HBO. Now he's doing a Blunt Talk that uh, stars Patrick Stewart. Very funny. I watched the first couple of episodes, and Jonathan Ames has been on the show before. And we catch up, and we talk a little bit about Blunt Talk. But we also talk a little bit about him shifting from being a memoir guy, very graphic, uh, very, um, is lurid the word, Sh- provocative, uh, sexually perverse at times, interesting, revealing uh, to being someone who writes fiction for very uh, specific reasons, which I found interesting. And you can hear me and Jonathan talk about that in his new show, Blunt Talk. Also on the show today, film director, producer, empire runner and manager uh, Robert Rodriguez is here. Uh, you might know him from El Mariachi, Desperado, From Dusk Till Dawn, Spy Kids, Spy Kids 2, Spy Kids 3. You might know him from Sin City, from uh, Grindhouse, Machete, Machete. But uh, right now, he does a lot of television too, uh, and he's a, he does a lot of producing. He's now at the helm of his new TV network, the El Rey Network, uh, and they've just created season two of From Dusk Till Dawn, the series, and that starts uh, Tuesday, August 25th at 9 p.m. on El Rey. But Rodriguez is uh, kind of a wizard, an inspiration, a dude who gets shit done. Do a nice hour-long chat with him. My driveway, I've, I'm doing it. Talk about change. I've been dealing with this driveway. Some of you who listen to me for years know that there's no drainage in the driveway. And apparently there's going to be apocalyptic rainstorms in L.A., which it's, it's bittersweet because we need it. We need it. My trees are crying, literally, on the street. You hear like, what's that weird sound? It's the sound of trees crying. because uh, and, and they don't have many tears in them because there's no water. There's, everything is just drying out. Finally, I just got a contract over here to do the driveway. So now they dug up the entire driveway with the Caterpillar. Is that what it's called? It's just, a, just like there were mounds of concrete and they hauled them away. And now my driveway is dirt. And uh, as you can imagine, I find that charming. And I'm fighting the urge to just leave my dirt driveway dirt. That could get kind of messy, but it's rustic. It's exciting, right? Right. Wrong. Going to get the driveway, going to get the drain so the garage isn't threatened and I don't have to rely on a ambiguous hole to drain my water and I don't have to rely on the overflow into my neighbor's yard. I'm being proactive, but change is difficult. I now have a dirt driveway and I like it. I'm going to be on real time with Bill Maher uh, tomorrow night, Friday, I'm going to be on the panel. No idea what the topics are. I don't know what we're going to talk about. Uh, you know, I'm not big into the politics, but uh, but I can usually get up to speed. So that should be fun. In terms of gigs coming up, I can tell you about them. Uh, tonight is Thursday. I will be at the Comedy Store doing a short set, a 15-minute set. I don't always announce the Comedy Store stuff because they're just short sets. I'm just working out. But I will be in Dublin, Ireland on September 2nd at Vicker Street. I'll be at the South Bank Center in London, England, September 3rd and 4th. I will be in Sydney, Australia, October 15th at the State Theater. 
I will be at the Palace Theater in Melbourne, Australia on October 16th and at the Brisbane City Hall in Brisbane, Australia, October 17th. Okay? I'm I'm telling you that because I'd like you to come if you're in any of those places. Look, this Saturday is the premiere of Blunt Talk on Stars, folks. Now, if you go way back with What the Fuck, then you know that Jonathan Ames is somebody I know. We had him on episode 114, which you can now get over at howl.fm or get the Howl app. And before Stars became a sponsor, I told Jonathan he could come on for some garage time since he had Blunt Talk. So here it is, me and the great Jonathan Ames, creator of Bored to Death and Blunt Talk and a fantastic uh, comic writer, both novels and memoirs. Let's talk to Jonathan Ames. Like, yeah, it's been five years since I talked to you in <laughs> your house in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. where you were you were uh, a writer with one show on the air mm-hmm. that did not uh, stay on the air. Mm-hmm. Well, that was a good show. What happened to that? We had a good run, though. We were on three years. That I mean, that that's felt, good yeah. on cable, and it was uh, interesting and fun and funny. Yeah, it was kind of like well, I don't. It was a little bit like a baseball player who made it to the majors for a couple of seasons, hit, yeah. about, hit about 250, Yeah, you know? Yeah. So then what happens? I mean, I, have you I, you haven't put another book out since, right? Uh, well, it's, I last put out a book in 2009. I published an e-novella, a thriller, yeah. completely non-comedic, yeah. Yeah. I think about two years ago, called You Were Never Really Here. Mm-hmm. I was reading all those Jack Reacher novels. Uh-huh. And also this crime writer, Richard Stark, which was a pseudonym for Donald Westlake. So I just wrote this very violent, uh, you know, kind of like you're using a nail driver to write sentences. Uh-huh. But that was the last bit of prose I published. Do you, but as a as a writer guy, as a guy that wrote, you know, sort of um, uh, incredibly uh, uh, sort of self prodding, mm-hmm. uh, experiential mm-hmm. memoir style mm-hmm. um, books, do you? Do you journal? I mean, do you like you're going through an interesting time in your life where success is coming your way in a different avenue, in a different venue? Well, yeah. I mean, I don't write, I haven't written autobiographically in a long time. You mm-hmm. know, uh, I did so much of that, I guess, towards the end of the 20th century, yeah. you know, back I don't know, when there were horses. But, um, and I so overdid it. And now I'm completely uh, freaked out by it. I, I, because I think I used to feel that I was telling the truth. Of course, it was all exaggerated right. or I was playing a character. Yeah. And now I, I had to write a piece of nonfiction and I just had to stop. I'm like, I'm doing the old shtick. It's not truthful. And, and I just can't do nonfiction anymore. And I don't write in my journal either because a few years ago, maybe around the time when you last interviewed me, I had blown up my life. And I would read my journal. I'd be so horrified by my behavior and the way my thoughts. And I just, I I was, it was kind of like looking, well, I don't know why I'm immediately going scatological, kind of like looking in the toilet or something. So I've stopped keeping a journal. Every now and then I write down goals and then hide the goals. Someone once told me to do that. That's about as close so as I can. like a magic to, trick? Yeah, a little magic trick. So, so, so is, it, is it the correct read? That uh, that you finally became consumed with shame mm-hmm. and could no longer face, uh, you know, who you were on the page with your 
personal experiences? Well, I think I've always been consumed with shame. I mean, it was like consumed and then consumed again. It was like... <laughs> Reconsumed for yeah, the public's enjoyment. It was like a snake that had eaten a snake that had eaten a snake. There's so much shame going back <laughs> before I even was born, I yeah. think. So I think what it was was that I, if I did want to write nonfiction, I would actually want to be honest. And But the things I might say, I don't wouldn't want to disturb people like my parents. So I'm just, I just stay away from it. I'd rather write TV shows or fiction or genre stuff and be completely hidden. That's a, that's interesting choice to make after you've exposed so much of yourself. And also I, I imagine, I don't know your life, <laughs> but I imagine, you know, at the level you're uh, attaining professionally that it might behoove you, uh, you know, not to uh, <laughs> yeah, put well, that stuff in the world. Well, well, yeah, I guess so because then, well, the thing is, you know, there is the outer self. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't derive any pleasure from any of what you might or anyone might consider my success. I'm, right. I'm still oh, just I'm as upset as I was at the age of eight when I was crawling on the floor with back spasms. Really? Yeah, I, I really am. Um, I mean, why, why, I, do you, why do you think that is? Because I have not, not quite that experience. I feel better to uh, have certain. Um, uh, I don't worry about certain things anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, so I feel better in that way. Like, mm -hmm. you, you know, I, I, it's nice to have a few bucks in the bank. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's positive. I do like that, you know, after being broke You're for right. the first, you know, 25 yeah. years of adulthood. And But that I don't necessarily gain too much pleasure for myself because then I think, well, it's, I'm going to lose it all. But and then, but I, I have, you know, actually, I don't know if you know this, but I have a son and a grandson. Right, I was going to ask you about your son because I, I know that we talked about the reuniting and hmm. and and you know that relationship. My son is wonderful, and and but you have a grandchild. Yeah, yeah, and he's beautiful, and um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, one shouldn't complain, you know, but yeah. it's your brain maybe gets a certain groove like a record, sure. you know, an anhedonia groove. You don't know how to experience happiness. Yeah, but I, I think I, every now and then I, I have moments like, like a shut-in pulling aside a curtain. It's like, oh, there's the world. Ah, fuck, the curtain went closed again. Well, you must, it must be uh, 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 unavoidable. To have some joy when you uh, you're with your grandkid. Yeah, no, that. How that, old is the child? No, that's wonderful because then you don't have a sense of self. You know right, what I mean? Right. Once you can get away from you, yeah, then you can experience joy. So how that, old that's is he? Right. He's uh, 16 months. Wow, little baby. Yeah, he's quite spectacular. And they live in town? Uh, no, no, they're, back they're, east. Yeah. Oh, well, are you doing granddaddy stuff? Like you go back and you spend time? And yeah, I, I I was there when he was born uh -huh. and I got to hold him about an hour after he was born, which was incredible. Did you cry? Um, I don't know that I cried in that moment, oh. though. I, I was uh, ecstatic, though. I bet. And, and I was glad to be present and heard his first cries. He oh. cried. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So you didn't want to compete? Yeah. I didn't. You didn't want to steal the moment? Yeah. That's mature you. Yeah. You're going to upstage your kid and they're crying. I know. Well, it's it's like being a good actor, I guess, you know, <laughs> giving them their moment. Now, the new show is called Blunt Talk. Mm -hmm. I think I talked to Richard about it a bit, Richard Lewis, who was mm -hmm. very excited to be playing uh, against type, which mm -hmm. I, I, I still have a hard time picturing. When's mm -hmm. it so, when does it start? Uh, August 22nd. It comes out on the Stars Network. For some reason, I want to say Stars backwards as Z-Rats. Is Chris Albrecht still over there? Yep. Oh, he, great. He's the head guy. Now, w let's walk through the, the process. So you have um, Bored to Death on, and mm -hmm. then you go back to the drawing board, mm -hmm. basically. 
Well, yeah, I had bored, bored to death gets canceled. I sort of, I don't know. I wouldn't say I fell apart, but I, you know, I, I just, I don't know. Suddenly I had work and then I had no work. And so I, I had no work for about a year. And then Jerry Stahl, your good friend. Yeah. I wrote Jerry, he and I began to whine back and forth over a series of emails yeah. about you know our lousy careers and all mm -hmm. that and you know he loves to mm -hmm. you know he's great at that and i yeah. was trying to top him oh and great. then he, and then and i and i said uh, you know we started talking about agents uh -huh. and all this stuff uh -huh. and uh and i said i don't know the agency hasn't got me any work and i don't know what's going on i don't know if they even care about me maybe i should leave not that i would because right. i'm very loyal and i don't do anything sure. confrontational and then jerry's like oh what's your literary agent's uh, email over there by the way or what's his name i say his name and jerry writes back what's his email i'm like ah, oh, i gotta do everything for jerry so i type in the email copy paste then you're supposed to delete yeah. and hit send, yeah, right? Right. So I do copy paste yeah. for Jerry. Yeah. Don't delete. I hit send. My agent gets these email exchange with me and Jerry Stahl <laughs> where I'm saying they haven't gotten me anything for a year. <laughs> and, and it was also a lot of suicidal ideation in the email, like all sorts of <laughs> right. crap. And then suddenly I'm like, oh, my God. So I didn't even have my agent's number in my phone. So I quickly look up you know the agency right. in new york yeah. get it and i had such an old phone i started hitting it the phone froze i had to take the battery out put the battery back on by the time i call he goes he goes what's this about not being attentive you know so that it was my literary yeah. and i was like oh shit anyway he spread the word that you know this guy maybe is not happy and so what happened was suddenly they started sending some things my way and i got an email that said would you like to get on the phone with seth mcfarlane I, and he's looking for a writer. I said, sure, I, I'll get on the phone with Seth MacFarlane. That'd be yeah. very cool. What's it about? And he said, uh, they need an idea for a comedy for Patrick Stewart. I said, okay. And uh, you'll talk to him the next day. So that night I happened to be channel surfing and I saw Piers Morgan on <laughs> CNN. Right. And his head was kind of looming in front of this blue background. I thought, wow, Patrick Stewart would look really cool as a cable news host with his head like something out of Orwell, yeah. kind of like a beautiful pill of a head, uh -huh. you know, with his electric candy behind him. So the next day I got on the phone with uh, Seth MacFarlane and he said, you, you know what I'm looking for? I said, yeah, comedy for Patrick Stewart. And he said, you know, basically, do you have any ideas? I said, what about Patrick Stewart sort of playing a cable news host, you know, and uh, we go behind the scenes kind of like Larry Sanders. Yeah. You know, and we sort of live behind the scenes. And he said, I love that. And so next thing I know, I met with Patrick Stewart a few weeks later, and he very generously read one of my books. And, and put I put himself through one of your books. Yeah, he put himself an old through, one, uh, an old one from 2004. <laughs> and yeah, he belted himself into a chair and forced himself like the guy in Clockwork Orange to read it. And, uh, and so he was happy to try to work with me. And then I developed it. And and then I emailed Patrick Stewart, what should we call this guy? Because I came up with the first story in a right. sense, which right. is, you, you know, your usual beginning of a TV show, put the character in a crisis. And I said, what should we call this guy? And Patrick Stewart wrote back, how about Walter Blunt? That was the first role I played in Shakespeare. And I used to use it as an alias. And it, and in the, the character's role in Shakespeare, I think it's Henry VIII, uh, he delivers some news to a king but then is killed. Right. It was like, perfect. The guy delivers news. It's an alias used to use. I love the name Walter Blunt. And right in that moment, I said, we'll call the show Blunt Talk. That, you know, like O'Reilly oh, Factor. Yeah. All came so together. I, I, I emailed, like, within 30 seconds, I'm like, I love it. Perfect. Walter Blunt. We'll call the show Blunt Talk. Yeah. His, sh in the show, within the show will be Blunt Talk. And so that's 
That was the process. What's your role here? Do you, are you there every day? Are you in the room? Oh, are you? Yeah, I'm the creator, showrunner, executive producer. Um, were you all uh, those things on Board to Death? Yes. Oh, you were. And so with Board to Death, I'm, I'm there for the first shot of the day and the last shot of the day. I like to be there all the time. I mean, as you know, with your show, yeah. it's not like with drama. If a scene's not working in comedy, you got to like sure. fix it in the moment. It's not sure. like you're just getting information across or something like that. If this, you know, and you don't have time to rehearse. Yeah. You have one table read. So I like to be there for every scene. You know, sometimes yeah. you get shots at the end of the day, which are maybe, you know, uh, not verbal or something, and I could leave. But yeah, I'm there from the, be- you know, by 7 a.m., home, get home like, you know, 9.30. And uh, and then I, I have all the final edit. I spent the last two and a half months in the editing room. Yeah, you stole one of my guys. I know, stole, stole one of your wonderful writers, Duncan, Duncan Birmingham. Birmingham. Great writer. Great writer. Duncan backwards is knack nude. Neck nude? Yeah. Do you call him neck nude? No, I should right now. We we, we called him, uh, he played a clown in one of our episodes. We did an homage to, I know it sounds fancy, to Peter Sellers' The Party, uh-huh. you know, the Blake Edwards sure. film. And and I just had all sorts of characters walking around. And so Duncan played uh, ah, so a clown it's... and we called it, uh, the clown I think was called Skunkin yeah. or Skunky yeah. the Clown because Duncan's dog had uh, gotten sprayed by a skunk and then got into snacks. bed with Duncan. Snacks. Yeah, Snacks. And sure. we named a character named Snacks. Duncan oh. is all over this. There's a pornographer in the show named Ronnie Birmingham. So, you know, and then I had a character played by Jason Schwartzman named Duncan. Somehow Duncan, who's yeah. very sweet and self-effacing, his name and his presence is like all over the show. Well, good, man. I'm glad, it's, I'm glad it's working out for him. Maybe I'll have to start talking to him again. Oh, you should. He's, he's <laughs> to say hello i mean he he I'm holds kidding. your I, high esteem now is it is it like um larry sanders in the way that what you see when the camera's on is significantly <laughs> different uh may, uh character wise than when the camera's off is oh that- yeah i mean i think we try to you know i mean the show i mean an obvious reference is network you mm-hmm. know a little bit with howard beale yeah. but yeah we get the feeling of like Here's Walter Blunt on air, you know, and then right. even the way it'll look on screen is sure. different. And, you know, we do the graphics below uh-huh. and then, you know, then there's a break and, you know, then we, you know, it's so, behind the scenes. So you're you're having fun in L.A.? I mean, are you getting out? I imagine you are. Well, I, I don't know. I went through a, a trauma and a breakdown recently. And so like, how did you, that manifest itself? Oh, well. What that, kind? Well, just. I, I don't want to go into detail, but you want to hear a kind of quick, beautiful L.A. story? I was really despairing yesterday, like kind of mad despair. I want the details of the breakdown. Oh, well, I, I know, but there's other human beings involved. But okay, let, let, So fine. let's say I was screaming. I literally was in my house, in my underwear yesterday, screaming in pain, right? And then physical or no mental oh, okay. and sorrow. Yeah. And I fell to the uh, kitchen floor and I, and again, I guess I brought my eight year old spasming self because I began to spasm on the kitchen floor and I was crying out for help, I guess, very loudly. What neighborhood? Um, I guess it's called Franklin Hills yeah, yeah. and I'm kind of a little bit high up or yeah. something and I was crying out for help. And just spasming on the kitchen floor like my inner eight-year-old spasming self who had a bad back and they put me in a corset, you know, in New yeah. Jersey back in the 70s, Yeah, I guess from fear or whatever. And uh, suddenly there's a pounding on my door. I'm like, oh my God, it's the cops. But it was four neighbors and I went to the door and they said, could you please open up? Are you all right? I opened up the door and they said, you okay? And they sort of asked me what was going on and then... One of them turned out to be a social worker, and they asked me if I wanted to go for a walk. And it was like, I mean, I'm a, I'm kind of agnostic and pantheistic, you know. I sure. I 
believe in many gods with the same amount of confusion or something. Uh-huh. But uh, so here I was crying out for help and four strangers came to my door. It was almost Christian. That was like prophets yeah. at my door. Right. And there was like three races too. There was lots of different races uh-huh. of people outside uh-huh. there. And then I went for a walk with these two nice guys. They said, why don't you clean yourself up? The guy wanted to shake my hand and literally because I'd been crying, snot was coming out of my nose. And I think there was some snot on my hand, but he's reaching out his hand. And I, yeah. Anyway, they were very accepting, generous human beings. And anyway, they took me for a walk, and and I'm much better today. I think I had some kind of personal primal scream therapy. Was that yesterday? Yeah, just yesterday. Oh, that's sweet. Now you know your neighbors. Yeah, and they gave me his number, and he lives right below. And so, you, are you going to buy him a nice cake or some I, wine or something? I, 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 you know, he he kept saying like, let's exercise together or something. I so I don't know if he's sober or not. So I didn't, you know, but right. cake uh, would be nice. Maybe yeah, cake. I got to do something. You're right. I'm gonna, but I. Anyway, they texted me later and checked on me. Oh, and, that's sweet. Yeah. So yeah. You've built a little a little uh, emotional security network right in your neighborhood. Yeah. yeah. Someone said, next time you scream like that, you should do it into the pillow. I don't know. I lost my mind, you know. So, but now, well, Eventually, it'll get to the point where they hear it and they're like, no, nah, it's just Jonathan. <laughs> I, <know>. <laughs> I think there was a cleaning lady from next door and she saw me and she's like, she thought like someone was getting knifed in there when she saw it was just a guy in his boxer shorts with snot coming out of his nose. She was like, ah. And this just was unprecipitated? No, I had been going nuts for about 12 days now. I'm much better now. And, and actually coming to talk to you gave me purpose. You know, I yeah. think having purpose is and helpful. It, well, you know, maybe it's a, that sort of like the come down from finishing the yeah, work. Yeah, finishing the work. And realizing and you're still just you. I know, the horror of that. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so it was coming down from work and other factors, and but I'm much better today. All right, so do I? Do you, you want to hang? You want to stay here for a while, or are you going to be uh, all right? I, I'm good. No, thank That's kind of you to offer. Do you need? <laughs> no, I'm all right. I got this iced coffee, and I'm going to go in my car and okay. be isolated. All right, buddy. Thank you. He's an intense guy. I, I like talking to Jonathan Ames. I, I always enjoy it, and I feel like I could talk to him for a long time. Now, here's a weird thing that's happening. I know you've noticed it happening. Is occasionally, I get people that I have uh, auditioned for. Yeah, I do a little acting. I don't know if you know, I have a show that uh, that's on IFC. Uh, I guess the third season will be on Netflix eventually, but, uh, but I do a little acting, and I think after the first season of the show, I actually auditioned for a Robert Rodriguez movie. And I don't always know if they know me at all when they come in here, uh, when they come to the to the to the garage. I don't know if they've listened to the show. I know now that a lot of them know that Obama was here and that, you know, that's something. But I don't know if they know. And I certainly don't know if he knows that, that I auditioned for his movie. But I'll, I'll bring it up. I'll bring it up. I auditioned for uh, Sin City, A Dame to Kill For. It's awkward sometimes because I talk to directors and I, it's hard for me not to go like, you know, come on, put me in your movie. But now then I'm just a guy in a garage who hosts a podcast wanting to be in a movie. You know, I could be like that. Hey, there's that guy. Be that guy. Hey, was that that guy? That was good. That was like, oh, he, that guy had a little scene. He played, he was the uh, cranky guy, the cranky uh, old guy with the mustache. He did good. He had a little scene. Just one of those. That's all I'm looking for. Again, Robert Rodriguez is here. We're going to talk a little bit about the El Rey Network, about season two of From Dust Till Dawn, the series, which is coming up on August 25th. 9 p.m. on El Rey Network and his movies and his process and where he comes from and how the fuck he managed to uh, to do all the stuff he does. These guys, these empire builders, you know, it's 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 amazing to me. And he's done it all on his own. He's cut his own path. 
I have two, but um, my empire is tempered. Uh, it's not that I, I can't visualize an empire, but uh, about right at the beginning of visualizing it, I, I start you know, you know, breathing quickly and I have a hard, my chest tightens. So uh, I'll have to settle for slightly panicky empires of the mind and my podcast. Yeah, so like you're out there in in Austin with that. I had Richard uh, Linklater in here. You guys buddies? Yeah, you know what? I actually met him after I made a mariachi. He called me and said, "So we should we should meet. We've never met. Cause people always ask me if I know you, and <laughs> they ask you if you know me. And I said, "Yeah, no, we, we never met. We were just kind of doing our own thing. We both kind of hit at the same time. Yeah, and we became friends, you know, right away." And uh, had visions of what, you know, we both wanted to stay in Austin. And it's like, what can we do to build this place up so we can shoot here? Uh-huh. We'll need stages. Uh-huh. Maybe when the airport moves, we'll try and get those stages. You know, all that stuff ended up happening. Within, you guys were in conversation about that. Oh, yeah. A long time before. Just visions of dreams of yeah, things yeah. that had. And then we actually built a film community there, kept our movies there. And one of the things early on that we talked about, too, is he said... Um, one of us has to get into distribution. That's the big thing. Just be able to distribute your right. own product. That's the key. You know, somebody's got to do like what the Weinsteins right. do or something. And now I got this television network. So I went to him and said, hey, look, remember 20 years ago, we we're talking about one of us needed to get into distribution. Yeah. I got a distribution channel. So now El, El Rey, is a, you see that as a distribution channel. Yeah, because as, a, as a, someone who makes films or television, you know, normally a filmmaker just creates product and he's got to go to a distributor. And make a deal with them so they can put it out. Well, what if you had your own pipeline? Sure, you've got a pipeline to an audience. We're at, we're at forty million homes now, and then through what's the, who's the deal with? Originally, it was a, a network I got from Comcast. They yeah. were they're going to merge with Universal, right? And um, they weren't going to be allowed to merge unless they gave away some networks to yeah. mom and pop type owners. Right. I put in an idea for the yeah. Elray Network, and he has a mom and pop Hispanic. It yeah. used to be like owned owned by yeah. Um, not owned by by a you know a corporation, uh, yeah. and um, I had this idea for the El Rey Network, an English language kick ass you know visceral entertainment network, English language you know very diverse in front of and behind the camera, and uh, and we got it, and Comcast had to carry us for ten years. Well, with that, I was able to go to other distributors and get them to sign on too, and then Univision saw what we were doing, yeah, and thought we'll fund what you're doing. Um, because it'd be a cool thing to be a part of. And they brought us distribution that they already had with DirecTV, Time Warner, so we didn't have to go knock on all those doors. And uh-huh. it got us, you know, really quickly into a bunch of homes. And do you find that, you know, through Univision that they're, they're, that the uh, the Latino audience is responding in, in, a, in a bigger percentage? Well, they're only on as financiers. They're right, not, so it's they're not... not um, they're not they like... They wanted us to do the content, us to right. do the... Because, you know, they thought... English language, Hispanic, um, skewed, but it's really general entertainment. I mean, it's for sure. everybody to watch. Of course. It's kind of where, you know, they were seeing a good direction to go into, but then they thought, well, who's going to run it? So you guys are already doing that. Right. We'd just rather invest in you and see what happens than to go try. We could They, they could create a network like that tomorrow, but who's going to program it? Who's going to do it? And um, I think that's why they, they um, backed us, and it's been it's been so fun. It's been fantastic coming up with shows to put on because you got you got a network now you got to fill it yeah 
And most new networks don't don't put new shows on right away. Right, they just you know, AMC um, had had sure they buy a original a, show for twenty years. You buy movies or syndicated you, pieces. You build up an audience. Yeah. But I thought you know we really needed to kind of come out swinging so people could find us. Right, and through the content, people would find us. And like the thing I was watching last night, the series from Dust Till Dawn is on there. Yeah, so I thought let me do stuff that nobody else could do. From yeah. Dust Till Dawn is a title that very popular as a film you know people still come up to quentin and i saying you know oh dust till dawn the movie love that yeah we controlled the rights to it so nobody could ever people had wanted to do a show out of yeah. it before but we had it locked down but we did it for the l ray network right thought, oh that'd be a, that'd be a cool draw because people will know the name and they'll say from dust till dawn where's that again l ray what's l ray and then they would find us sure so and i and, shows and also the the, the sensibility that that you guys are, it seems that the two of you created is something fairly specific right and uh, a certain type of uh, of audience a certain type of uh, person who is into those types of movies is compelled by it yeah. and they'll go find it and they're very dedicated loyal people really really dedicated <laughs> really loyal they see what else we have on the network and they're like what you have Kung Fu Thursdays and you got Creature Feature Fridays and right. Brass Knuckle Mondays I mean it's really these cool franchises that bring people back because all the all the content on the network's curated it's only stuff that we genuinely love and have seen now what did what, was Quinn involved in the TV one Oh, he uh, allowed me to do it, and he's uh, an executive producer, but um, he just let me go make it, because the, the original script that he had written, it, it had vampires in Mexico, but it, the whole thing with the temple and the snake cult, that's just stuff that I added, because I, I wanted to. So yeah. for the TV show, I thought, let me let me explore more into that area that I was kind of hinting at in the film. That whole last shot in the film where it shows the back of the bar being a pyramid and yeah. Aztec temple was something I, I invented. So it was um, actually now I could go in and explore that. And that was the pitch to him. He said, oh yeah, go. He loved what, he didn't even want to see him in advance. He wanted to see him when they aired and he watched every episode and, and really loved it. And it's good, man. And propelled us to keep keep going with it. It's good. Nice to so see Don him. Johnson for a few minutes. You know, I worked with Don. <laughs> uh, I turned Quentin on to Don. I worked with Don on Machete. Yeah. And uh, I said, you know, the biggest star that I've ever, I've worked with a lot of big stars. The biggest star by far was Don Johnson. I mean, as far as the crew stopping yeah. work, hanging on every word. People when loved Talking him. about Miami Vice episodes yeah. or how they did that. I mean, he was just like a real man's man. Really, people just gravitated towards him. And he went, really? He go, yeah. So he put him in, uh, you know, his next movie with yeah. Django. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and then I thought about him to play that character that you know was played so brilliantly with michael parks in the original film to continue that character and have him go throughout that whole first season and yeah he came and man we had a blast he's he's really terrific he's a pro right he's a t oh he's a pro and what's great doing television with him yeah and he was um he's in that whole first season yeah but i shot him in the first four days of shooting the whole season and you shot him days. in the first episode <laughs> yeah but he shows up in many more episodes but i yeah. shot all his work yeah yeah in four yeah. Days. yeah. And he really started us off on the right foot because he told us about the days how they used to shoot Miami Vice and all that. And he so he actually had production, he had production skills. I mean, doing Nash Bridges. I'm going to see. This is what you got to do. You got to figure out how to shoot the dialogue quickly so that you have time for the action. Because, and he was right. And he was right. Yeah, he said I used to go put the camera on a on a camera car, and I would drive fast behind it and get my close-up spin over and get Cheech's close-up get the two shot all in one <laughs> knock out seven pages and it's like brilliant it's brilliant stuff you know the guy's really savvy really so he smart. taught you stuff taught us all schooled everybody really great, great that's stuff. amazing and you, you were and you were you're a fan of uh 
of the of his shows of Nash Bridges and Miami Vice. I got to guest star on Nash Bridges once. Cheech invited me up. He said, "Hey, I, I need somebody to play a, a commercial director in this how one old episode." Were you? I think the episode's called Bombshell. What, yeah. what, what how old was I think it was like <laughs> that's probably 97, 98. Yeah. And yeah. I went and I got to, and you know, when you show up on a set, there's never anything going on. There's always like yeah. a dialogue scene. Yeah. I walk on, I turn on my little video camera. I can't believe I'm about to meet Don Johnson. And he comes around the corner, they call action. I got there right on the take. Yeah. And he's like, hit it. And then the, all the <laughs> bullets start flying. All the It was all in one. Yeah, all yeah. in one take with yeah. like three cameras. Yeah, yeah. They blew up yeah. the whole place. And he's doing the whole Don Johnson. I couldn't yeah. believe it. I was, yeah. like, I, was, I was so excited to be able to witness that. And what about working I mean, with Cheech? And Cheech, I've, I've worked with Cheech so much. I mean, I put him in Desperado. He's, in, he's like 10 in my movie. Yeah. He's got to always have a Cheech. You know what Cheech is very savvy about? And I tell us the other actors yeah. who get bummed that they don't get to work more in my movies, even if I've worked with them before. I said, well, you know, I, you got to remind me. You got to be like Cheech. You know what Cheech does? Cheech just calls me out of the blue. <laughs> so what, says, what do you got? He, he just goes, how's my part coming? <laughs> I'm like, my part? And I go, oh, you know what? I'm working on this thing called, you know, you would be great as Machete's brother. You should be Danny Trejo's brother. You know, it clicks yeah. suddenly. He doesn't even know if you're even working on yeah. anything. He just said, that's just his opening line yeah. when he calls I, you. I had them both in here. I had Chi-Chi and Chong oh in God. here. And it was crazy because I grew up listening to those records. So I'm sitting here with those two guys just telling stories and I'm like, oh my God. Right. The voices I mean, are so distinct. Well, you know, growing up, you know, in San Antonio, Texas, when you would hear these guys yeah. talk mm-hmm. especially they would every Christmas they would play that one Christmas thing on <laughs> Donner on Tavo on Beto on Jude it's like God, that's like three of my uncle's names right there you know when you would hear your name in popular yeah, yeah, culture yeah. Right. it's kind of what I why I do what I do right as far as because uh, of Cheech because of Cheech yeah. it really hit me in a completely different way that's why I wanted him in Desperado yeah because it made you feel like you're a part of the zeitgeist you know in a way. Uh-huh. and um it really was an eye opener as far as uh, attracting all kinds of audience through through something like that. Well, you grew up in San Antonio because, mm-hmm. like the the movies, that are, the way your movies are, the tone of, of the films, and, and some of that B movie stuff and the swasher movie stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean that, you, and Machete specifically, yeah, those were popular with Latino kids, right? Yeah, I mean it was a, a whole mix of things. Yeah. You liked all kinds of stuff when you grew up fifth generation. You liked everything. You liked all all kinds of movies. Because I see kids around here because this is a, a a Latino neighborhood. Is that like wrestling? Like you can see kids what they're into, right? You know, on skateboards and they're you know they're wearing metal shirts. But there is a thing. You know, what was the thing? Yeah, I know there's a lot of things, but I mean we're almost the same age. Yeah. You know what were you doing like when you're 14 or 15? No, it was you know I grew up in San Antonio. It's a very rock and roll town. Yeah, you yeah, know, it's yeah. Rock. Yeah. It's yeah. really rock town. Yeah. Uh, it had that sort of sensibility and it just kind of permeated everything you kind of went uh even how you just lived your life it was kind of a rock and roll mentality yeah yeah yeah. i went to make films it was like you know that was the beginning of the rock stars director when quentin came out and the whole independent a new wave began where people were making movies for no money when did you get interested in it though i was doing this since i was 12 I started making movies at 12 my dad had one of the early vcrs around on the market it had a camera the big camera Camera that you have to turn on your TV to see what you've been pointing at. Right, right, yeah. Or even at manual iris, yeah, yeah. manual focus. And it only had a 12-foot cable, so you could only film as far as the deck was. Right. <laughs> I had to take extension cords and the TV set. I mean, it was a whole operation. Specifically for- Kung Fu movies in the backyard. And for film. family events. I, why, it was weird. Why do you think- What was it, the was logic this, on those? First, well, it was it was like he had it for sales tapes because he sold cookware. He would use sell, show sales presentations on it. Oh, really? Us. So he well, recorded it? I his, took that yeah. and used it to make movies. What with. kind of cookware? It was like this um, 
really heavy duty, like door to door salesman. Yeah. I mean, pots he, and he pans. Was able, yeah, he was able to support ten kids selling pots and pans. Ten Cause, kids because you sold it, you know, by um, whatever you sold is what you made. So yeah. if he would need another set of braces, he would go. All right, that means I got to sell four sets this week. <laughs> he would go out and he would sell it. And so uh, just about everyone in my family ended up being an entrepreneur because, you know, that was the only way you'd ever make the money that you would need to survive is if you could just work as much as you could to make whatever you needed. There are 10 kids. 10 kids. I was How, third oldest. Third oldest? Yeah. And all of my little early movies that I made in the backyard with that VCR starred my siblings because they were all younger and they were all, were all just sitting around watching TV anyway. Yeah. And they were all sort of precursors to Spy Kids. They were like little action comedies. Right. With kids doing the action. So you didn't expect any great performance. So if they acted even half decent, it seemed amazing. And we'd win awards all the time. <laughs> and um, the, one of them was is online. It's called Bedhead. That was the movie I made just before Mariachi that made me realize cause it was an eight minute film. It cost me 800 bucks shot on film. I was cutting in the camera, and I thought, God, that won all these awards. It's crazy. I, I bet if I multiply that times 10, I could probably make an 80-minute movie for $8,000 if I shot it the same way, no crew. What do you mean you edit in the camera? You just, well, you, I, would, I would just, I wouldn't shoot a lot of footage, because the footage is So you'd lay it out film. narratively. I would lay it out. I shot it, pre-shot it on video, yeah. cut it, and then I would just go get the shots I would need. So I would say, okay, action. They would start moving. Then I would start filming. <laughs> Stop filming, then call cut, so that I wouldn't shoot beyond the takes that i needed you shot it all on video first so, it was, so you knew exactly how it fit together yeah, yeah is that something you brought to el mariachi as well i didn't pre-shoot it on video but i but that really helped that exercise seeing how little i actually used made me preserve even more the film yeah nobody cares now because now you shoot digital you can just let it run and run i'm like yeah. the opposite now you just let it run because you want to capture a performance but back then that was your biggest expense yeah you had to to make a movie like that for that little, you had to shoot almost like a you know a one to one ratio, one point five to one ratio. What'd you shoot it on? Sixteen. Sixteen millimeter, a little Aries sixteen S. Because I remember when that came out, it was like a, a monumental. It was like this guy did this for nothing. Yeah, it was one of those things where I made it. The reason it's even in Spanish, and it was it was for a Spanish home video market. I didn't want anybody to see it. It was really a practice film because my short films were winning enough awards that I thought, wow someone's gonna scout a festival yeah. see my short film and hire me to make a feature and I don't know how to make a feature I've, I've spent the past 10 years making short films so right. I, I gotta go practice but you you were that you were career aware enough to know that that was gonna happen that was gonna you. happen so I needed to get that practice till in a feature so I thought let me go make one in Spanish for the Spanish video market for no nothing. one will see it no one will see it how many Robert Rodriguez's are there you know my friends later I can tell them hey they like foreign films I, say, hey, I made a foreign film it's over there in the Spanish section so I thought I'm gonna go make a couple yeah, of these yeah, yeah. for no money yeah if I turn around if I make it for eight thousand dollars or five thousand dollars turn around and sell it for 20 yeah as a college kid that was amazing who are you working with film school it's yeah. just me and the guy who's in it it was just my whole brainstorm I had a really solid plan make three of these things yeah. like a dollar trilogy yeah. um and then sell them make the money invested in the next one and the next one to get my skills down and be the whole crew so i would learn camera sound editing everything all in one it's like a film school that you get paid for right that was my brainstorm right and then it's I would funny because you still together. think like that i still think that way. yeah but i would cut together the best parts yeah and show that as a demo reel but then take the money and make a real independent american english language first film that was that the plan real, that was my plan so i'm gonna get my, some practice films out of the way because it's been working good in the short film realm. first film goes out 
Columbia Pictures gets it as a demo of my work from my agent sent it to him. And they ask, this is great. What do you want to do? What, what stories do you have? And I didn't have any stories. I, th- I, th- I thought I had another five years to think that through. And I panicked and said, well, I haven't really thought of anything yet. This all kind of happened very fast. I was only 22. Yeah. So I thought, well, you like mariachi. How about we just remake that with like Antonio Banderas or something in the lead? And they said, okay, okay, well, let's test it first. I'm gonna, yeah. We want to show it to an audience because the ending might be a downer with a girl dying and all that. So we, we want to just check that out. All right. So they screened it and it played great. They played it to a mostly Latin crowd who we went nuts for it. Oh, uh, yeah. And they said, we're going to take this to the film festivals. And Isn't that like, interesting, though, that they could handle the ending? Yeah, they loved it. Yeah. They thought there was nothing wrong with it. It fit the, it fit yeah, the story. Right. So I thought, um, I told them, don't show this movie. <laughs> I can do much better. I mean, the only reason it was that inexpensive because I thought no one was going to see right, it. Right. Yeah, I, yeah. I had to shoot because look, if, you, if, if your biggest cost is film. If you shoot even one more take of everything, just yeah. in case, yeah. you've doubled your budget. Right. So I only shot one take, one take, one take, thinking, okay, I'll go back to Texas. I'll edit it. The stuff that really didn't come out because it was out of focus or it wasn't right, I'll come back and just shoot those pieces. Yeah. Right. All right. Very, sure. But you ended up never coming back and fixing it. It's like, this is the first one. I'm just right. going to sell it. See how much I can sell it for. <laughs> right. And then it went off. And I told them, don't show this movie. Please give me $2,000. I'll reshoot half of it. Just yeah. knowing people was going to watch it, I would probably do a million things different. I would have spent more for yeah. one. And they said, no, no, you don't know what you have here. It's very special. And they took it to Telluride, played Telluride, took it to Toronto. And they said, um, scout from, you know, the head of Sundance came and said, don't show it any more festivals and you can bring it and put it in competition at Sundance. It won Sundance, the honor right. award. And, and I was floored. It was the movie I didn't want people to see, but then I realized what it was, that it was made as pure as a film could be. I mean, no one makes a film with the intention of not showing it to anybody. Right. I mean, look at the title. Even yeah. the action market that yeah. I was selling it to. If you went to the action video section of the Spanish section there, you wouldn't rent a movie called The Guitar Player. That right. promises no action at all. <laughs> I just did that as a joke. You know, I thought, I, I'm going to just call it mariachi. And if someone happens to get it, they're going to be blown away that it's got action in it. Right. And that it's actually pretty cool. But, yeah. You know. And that's and, how and, and that's how it started. And then I realized when I when I had won at Sundance, what I said at the podium when I got the award was, "You're going to get a lot more entries in this year because <laughs> when people hear that this is the one that won, a movie made with no crew, no money, everyone was going to pick up a camera and go start shooting." And they've been flooded with entries since. That was like really the start of that that independent wave of the '90s, right? Where people could then just go and do it themselves. Well, when when you were growing, you, but you had you gone to film school at all? I I been making movies since I was 12 in that manner and when I tried to get into the film school I made that first short film bedhead the one that I with a wide mm-hmm. camera in, in film one yeah the film the first film class right and that summer I went and made mariachi so I, I was never done. finished school yeah, yeah I was out of there before I learned it and what they would teach is how to do it the traditional way that you would do in Hollywood but what I was applying was something that I created myself born out of having started on video because when right. you're on video you don't need a crew it's got a automatic exposure it's got automatic sound you don't right. need a sound guy right and i adopted that technique to shooting with a film camera and that's how i got on mariachi but when you were a kid i mean what what was like because now you, you you have a vision you have a, a style but when you were starting out when el mariachi what what who were your primary influences which films were blowing your mind when you were a kid you know what was coming in well, you know, tonally, that was like, what the fuck? My my um my mom used to take because there was so many of us used to take us to the revival theater. We had a revival theater near us where they yeah. play double 
features, right. triple features, old classics that she grew up with. And I remember seeing a, a Hitchcock double feature once that blew my mind. I was like nine. And yeah, within three years, I was making movies. I started thinking visually. Which movie? Like it was Spellbound and uh, Notorious. Yeah. And uh, the Salvador Dali sequence in Spellbound, I, I thought I dreamt it. You know, it was, it was just really got it in my head. And it was so cinematic and so well-crafted. And you could tell it was intentionally put together more than anything else I had seen. Um, and then I got off on things like, uh, you know, Sam Raimi movies, John Carpenter movies, guys that, that came from the independent world where they were making genre films and creating their own worlds um, on two like, string budgets and doing multiple jobs. That looked fun. That but looked you, like you like suspense and horror. Yeah, I like suspense, for horror, action, and comedy. I yeah. like comedy. Um, I started as a cartoonist, so I would put a lot of that. In. That's why a lot, a, all the movies are really linked by fantasy and humor. Right. They're all kind of just funny. Yeah. They, know, because I can't take it that seriously because I, I, I come from that comedic background. But El Mariachi was a little intense, though, at the end, wasn't it? I, I mean... It, yeah, it's got jokes all the way through it. Though. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. We yeah. just watched it recently for the 20th anniversary of it. And uh, it was funny to see it again on the big screen with like a full house, like 1,500 people. And... Um, yeah, the first few shots come up, and I'm like, yeah, this looks like a movie made for $7,000. And then about two minutes into it, I'm yeah. starting to sweat going, oh, my God, how the hell did we make this thing? It's, I, I, I don't know how, just willpower. I mean, it's like nothing. It's held together with scotch tape, but story just wants to kind of happen. Right. And it propels you along, and it's funny. It's funny, and everyone's kind of comedic. Yeah. And I think it's because you're throwing it away. Right. I didn't think anyone would see it. You kind of were free to just do what jazzed you. Right. You were learning. You were just and learning. You're in it. And so you throw it away. And it ends up being one of your best works because you're not putting it anything precious about it. I remember we took it to Telluride and because it was subtitled and it was in Spanish, I think they, they, they added more to its meaning than right, right. intended. Yeah. And you see some of the, you know, the older audience come out going, oh, it was like an opera. Yeah. <laughs> this is like a grindhouse film in Spanish. But hey, because of the Telluride, they, they kind of saw it with those eyes. It, it really elevated the whole thing. Everyone's going to come to it with their own thing, you know? Yeah. So how did you get the money to make that though? That one was um, famously made for $7,000, and people would think that's so inexpensive. And it was like, when you're a college kid, and so you already had, you know, nobody's got that kind of money. Mm -hmm. I already had two jobs paying barely for yeah. rent and tuition. Yeah. Um, from a huge family. I'm not going to get borrowing any money from any family members right. too soon. You had to, like, figure out a score you had to do. And that there was a, it was UT Austin, it was the biggest university in the country at the time. There was a place called Pharmaco yeah. that would you could go sell your body to science for the right. weekend because they knew they needed, college kids always need money. Yeah. And you go check into there for the weekend and you turn you into a pincushion and you get 500 bucks. You right. Know, and they test all the latest pharmaceuticals that are going to come out. And it's like a fourth stage. It's not like they're mixing a couple things up and giving it to right. us. This is like, in fact, the drug that I went in to test ended up being Lipitor. Oh, yeah? So it was, uh, it was called X5, 3, 2, 1, or whatever. Yeah, so you had great cholesterol had levels. Great, well, what's great is you're locked in there for a month. Yeah. And they feed you a really high cholesterol diet. So you had bacon, and, <laughs> and you ate really well, and yeah. you're stuck in there. Yeah. So you have to, you know, you have to shit it in a certain hour, you have to pee at a certain hour, you have to do everything they say. But it was only one blood draw a day, so it wasn't that painful. Right. And I could write the yeah. whole time. I would just get on a night schedule and write. I wrote the script while I was in there. I met the bad guy who yeah. played the uh, the character of Moko. He was in there saying, hey, you know what? You look kind of like Rudger Hauer in a mix of James Spade and Rudger Hauer. People will think I hired that guy. Yeah. Like, I hire you to be the bad guy. 
and we all had dreams of what we we're going to do with our money when we got out. Ours was, you know, we we're going to go make this little Mexican action picture. And I made $3,000 that first visit, you know, while I wrote the script. And then my, my uh, star of the film sold a piece of land and he put in the rest. What was and his we name? And shot it. Carlos Gallardo. Yeah. yeah. The original Mariachi. Yeah. And then we went and Are you guys uh, still buddies? Shot it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much. And uh, we can't believe, you know, how, how far that, that thing went. I, I imagine that being 22 and being offered this opportunity, you're like, holy fuck. Now all of a sudden there's millions of dollars involved. And it, it, I mean, how did you like make the adjustment? It was, um, it helped. I did a, a little movie for Showtime between that. They gave Salma her first job because yeah. they, they didn't think she was right for the movie because she had never worked before yeah. in English. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I'm going to make her a calling card. I did a little movie for Showtime. It was only like a 13 day shoot called Road Racers. And it's a great little movie, um, greaser movie. It's uh, you can get it on Netflix now. It was it was really a cable movie, but if I, I shot it like a feature. I really wanted to test out a thirty five millimeter camera shooting. Um, You've never done it before. Desperado. I've never done it before with a crew. I didn't know what they did. I yeah. didn't know what the crew even did. So that this is me a learn gaffer. A bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember when I put the camera on my shoulder, and then a guy comes over and starts focusing for you. I go, yeah. "You mean you focused the, for the guy in the camera? Oh my god, this is easy." But <laughs> <laughs> I, I was doing mariachi, I was having to fo- try to focus to this thing and operate at the same time. It's impossible. Yeah. Oh, this isn't so bad. <laughs> you had people to help you with everything. So um, yeah, I, I shot that, and then I went and did Desperado, and it was really. I was just hell bent on and showing now what I could do with it, with the medium and showing to myself because I hadn't really done something purposely for an audience to see. And so I, I, I loved John Woo action movies, but right. he shoots those for, you know, 200 days. We had 30, like a 33 day schedule on Desperado. So I had to shoot really, really fast. And uh, it was just exhilarating when you shoot fast and you don't have them much money. It was the lowest budget studio movie for sure. Yeah. Well, it was only a few million dollars. Um, and which one went really far because I went to that same border town that I had shot the original Mariachi. So I went further down there. But really only got us about 30, 34 days or something. And um, and it, it made money, right? It was about, yeah. It's one of their, whenever they would have a new medium come out, whether it be DVD or Blu-ray, yeah. Desperado's the first title they put out because that audience, early adoptive audience is yeah. going to get that movie. When did you meet uh, Quentin? I met him during the El Mariachi phase. We're both on the film festival circuit. Because we were Pulp time. Fiction. No, because he was with oh, Reservoir, with, uh, Dogs. Re- Reservoir yeah, Dogs. Yeah, yeah, yeah Reservoir yeah. Dogs. And we were having to uh, do a lot of panels together defending our movies because of the violence in the movie in the '90s. Even though it was only '92, I don't know what it's called. <laughs> the panels, discussions, that. But uh, both our guy, our movies had guys dressed in black, and they were violent in their action films. And you were taking a task for that. Well, it was just so they had something to talk about. So right. And we'd do a panel together, and our movies would screen, and, and their movies were popular there at the festivals. And I'd met him on some of those panels, and uh, we became fast friends. And he was like, I'm writing a script that you're really going to dig. It's called Pulp Fiction. And I went back to the Columbia Pictures lot to go work on Desperado, and he had an office next to me. Originally, he was making Pulp Fiction for TriStar. Right. Because Danny DeVito had a deal there. Danny was a producer on it. So we ended up writing together. So I would come over and he would come in and read and act out sequences from Pulp Fiction. I would come show him all my storyboards for like Desperado. And um, when he turned in the script, they turned it down. Yeah. They were like, no, it's too weird. Eight million dollars. Don't get it. It's too yeah. long. We'll go do the Pauly Shore movie instead. Yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was off the yeah. And he went to Miramax. Yeah. And he had just been bought by Disney. And so he made Pulp Fiction the way he wanted. And it was, you know, awesome. But, and both of you guys have been able to maintain your sort of control and auteurship 
Well, what's great about that place was that they were just starting as a studio. Yeah. And they, they'd been around for a while, Miramax, but they didn't have really any money until yeah. they got bought by Disney. So yeah. now suddenly they had the backing of Disney, but the freedom to do whatever they wanted. Quentin was first with Pulp Fiction. I came joined quickly after to do Pulp, um, from Dust Till Dawn. And I stayed there and they would adapt for us. You know, there was a horror genre arm called Dimension that I would do my movies for with Bob Weinstein. Right. But if I said, you know what, these kids' films that I made always won awards, I want to do one called Spy Kids. Do you think you could put that through your dimension? And he's like, sure, why not? Yeah. So we wouldn't make even a Spy Kids movie there. There was like no rules. It was a perfect combination and they're, of distributor they, and film. They must have loved you, though. I mean, for them, it was, yeah. uh, I don't have a sense of the wine scenes. I don't live in the film world, but, you know, they're sort of mythic figures. But it, it seems to me that uh, if you're making money, if you're making the money, yeah. <laughs> they're and like, the thing with whatever ours, you want to do, buddy. Yeah, we were, since we were the first ones there, and, and to entice us there, we, we were given, you know, Final Cut, and we had all kinds of freedom that no other filmmaker really had after that, which is where the problems for if any filmmaker usually complains. It's because they don't have final say on their movies, but we did. Yeah. So we got to kind of do whatever we wanted there. It was a great place to, to work. And was the, the impulse to do Spy Kids, you like kids, I guess. I just grew up that way. I mean, there's 10, 10 of us, and then I had five. I didn't have kids at the time when I wrote it, but by the time I was making it, I had three already. Really? Yeah. They're in there as stunt kids. Because when you're making an action film with kids, they don't really have stunt kids. They used to use, you know, like little people. <laughs> so it was either my, my stunt coordinator and me. We both had kids. We yeah. put our kids in there, and they would get banged around. <laughs> <laughs> there was never no, no backlash on that? No, back then, I couldn't complain. It's like, hey, this is a family business. You know, if we had a restaurant, you'd be pushing the broom and taking the orders. But, you know, it's a, it's a film business, so you got to go take a hit for the team. <laughs> <laughs> so, so 10 kids, so you were brought up pretty Catholic? Yeah, very Catholic, yeah. Mexican family, yeah. So definitely, it's about... As many kids as God gives you, that's how many you should have. Yeah. You never questioned it. I yeah. never thought it was that many kids. Yeah. Because you knew them all by their first name. So people would come <laughs> over. I had a friend who was uh, an only child, and he yeah. came in, and he literally said, how can you stand the noise? And I was like, what noise? And I listened with his ears for a few minutes. <laughs> and I realized, yeah, I guess it is pretty noisy in here. You totally block it out. It's just how, <laughs> it's how thought, you oh my up. God, this must be so loud to this guy. Yeah. I, that's that's just the, how the house sounds. It's, you didn't know any different. You know? So like you must have like uh, dozens of nieces and nephews at this There's point. There's so many. There's so many of us. <laughs> and, and you know them all. They've all got great personalities, very distinct. That you seem to be sort of fascinated at the fact I'm that you know your siblings. So many, you I, you, know, you would think you would lose track right, after a while. Your, and you don't. There's so many. And you know them all yeah they've all very they've made themselves very distinct are any of your siblings in show business um my oldest sister angela started to went to new york to be an actress she yeah. actually is in desperado and a couple of my things um and then i have a younger brother and a younger sister who write also write and do cinematography they all kind of man they're musicians everyone kind of is in the creative art somehow even if they're a pharmacist or something they uh, have an art side oh yeah to them. are they all still in texas yeah most of them my really sister, my sister's still still in new york but the rest are in texas what what is exactly the the grindhouse genre i mean how wh what are the the movies of that genre that define it the older ones when you say a grindhouse movie well grindhouse man it was a theater the it was a name for a theater that would just like grind the movies out. They would have double and triple features. and So like the one you went to when you were a kid? Yeah, you know, when you see, you'd seen a kid, the prints are damaged and yeah. it's like the, the, that same print's been traveling the country. Right, right. And they, they didn't make very many of them, the prints. And, uh, were they primarily B-movies? Some of them were B-movies, yeah. Some of them were B-movies or, or genre films. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, lurid subject matter a lot of times because that's the only way to attract an audience with such a low budget. Right. But a lot of times, too, they'd be very timely. So, right. like, if some thing was happening in the country, they'd go make a movie about it right away to exploit it. Like Corman. Exploitation would come from. Was it Corman type? Corman types. Yeah. You know, New World Picture. Yeah. Or, you know, a number of. A lot uh, of horror movies and riffs on other movies that were popular. Yeah, yeah. That's why when I did Machete, it was like the first mexploitation movie. I think I even called Mariachi that. I would call it mexploitation. Um, but when Quentin and I, Quentin would show me a bunch of movies in his theater. He had a, you know, a home theater. And, and even before he had a theater, he would string up movies like Burt Reynolds and White Lightning. And yeah, we, yeah. We'd, we'd check out these movies. And it was such a fun experience sitting there hearing him talk about them put them together he would put trailers in between them and show me like a double feature sometimes we'd watch a triple feature of some movie that i'd never seen before he turned me on to and his prints were damaged and that became part of the patina of the film sure i remember one time he showed me an amazing print i went home because i I said i think i have that blu-ray i went home and put it on and it was so clean i was like oh i I, it it took away from the experience i loved it was um it was, I think it was the good, the bad, and the ugly. He yeah, showed yeah. Me. His print was so damaged, it added a patina to it that it was the best screen I'd ever had of it. And I'd seen it before. I went back and watched it again. And I, I like Quentin's print. Right. I want to get a copy of his print. Because it's washed out from age and, and that's beat when up. I came up with the idea, like, we should do a double feature. Yeah. You know, like two short features with trailers and fake trailers in between. And we'll mash it up and grind it up so it looks like one of those... Because, you know, theater-going experiences are going, damn, we got to do this one last stab at a theatrical experience where you can only see it in the theater. Come yeah. On. And he went, oh, we got to call it Greenhouse. We yeah. got to call it Greenhouse. And, and it and worked, we just, right? And we put it together, and it was so funny. It got great reviews. Yeah. Some most people didn't see it in the theater. Yeah. Because it would just seem like too long of a night at the movies. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, uh, but it was uh, one of our favorite failures because it just, uh, it, people to this day still really love, you know, that film. And it was a great experience. And What did you take from those, like from seeing those movies? Because, it, it, you know, they, they do inform your tone, you know, and pacing some of, the, some of the, the style of those movies. What is it specifically about those films? Economical. They're economical in every sense in that they, right. had, they don't have very much money. They got to right. get to the point. Right. It's an economy of, of, of process and story. Yeah. So the story just comes at you really quickly. Right, right. And it's got to grab you by the nuts because it doesn't have time to sit around. They don't, just don't have the money for it. Right. So that immediacy and urgency that you would get from that. Um, it's a rush. You know, it's the rush. It's the same as if, you know, we got to record this band with just these four tracks and we yeah. got to do it now. Yeah. As opposed to let's go spend two months in the in the recording studio. You know, one's going to have a life to it and the other one's going to feel a little sedated but know? when you guys shot grindhouse you had a little more money and time than that didn't you we had more money and time than the guys that originally did it but we pushed i mean i pushed myself to go as fast as possible because um i just learned that from the early films that, yeah you know, when you have less time and less money you're forced to be more creative and that's the thing someone's going to come up to you constantly and says i love in the movie when this happens yeah and it's like oh that's because the light had blown out and we had to <laughs> and we had to rig this other thing and so and that's always the thing that they're attracted to the mistakes so you want to set it up in a way where you're constantly making mistakes in a good way because there's and an authenticity the that to it. Yeah. right there's a, it's yeah, so how'd your relationship with Danny Trejo uh, unfold I have the, he's you know I worked with him he was on my TV show oh he's the best D- dude it was hilarious we you know we had a lot of dialogue and you know and he, we had cue cards everywhere so he could you know wrangle it and at some point, we're sitting in a car, and there's literally cue cards <laughs> on the dashboard. And he goes, there's so many words, man. They hire me for my face. <laughs> there's, there's more words in all five years of movies I've done. That guy's hilarious. One time he's he called, great. He called me from 
Dallas one yeah. time. He said, hey, I'm working on a movie here with Mickey Rourke. And I was like, ah, cool. What's it called? Man, I work. <laughs> he, doesn't know, he doesn't know what movie's on. He's like, he goes where they tell him. He's just like, he shows up in everything. He's in over 200 movies. But even his mom would call him Machete. He, yeah. That became his definitive character. Oh. And when I met him on Desperado, yeah. he walked in. I was looking for a guy that would be the silent killer with his knives that yeah. would spit in his hand and throw. It was a very yeah. visual idea yeah. I had. And I saw his photo. And, Ooh, this guy looks cool. He walks in. Yeah. And I just handed him the knife. He got the part without having to say anything. I said, here, start yeah. practicing. Yeah. And he walked back out. I said, that's the guy. I could face on that guy. Right. And um, he came down. Then then you meet what a cool guy, sweet guy he is. Oh, so yeah. For sure, I'm not going to give him any dialogue. Yeah. People, he'll open his mouth and he'll spoil it. Right. He looks so menacing. Right. No words. He's sweet, he deep saying, dude. Hey, put me in, coach. Put me in, coach. Give me a line, coach. Yeah. Oh, no, 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 Danny, don't talk. <laughs> I finally let him talk in Dust Till Dawn because it was funny to hear him talk and you yeah. see what a sweet guy he is. Yeah. But um, and even on, on the set of Desperado, what it was interesting is uh, Antonio was the star of the yeah, film, right. but he was from European you know, sure. films. So the Mexican crowd, they didn't know who he was. So they see a camera on the street and two actors in costume. They all gravitated to Danny Trejo. They thought, this guy must be the star. Right. There's cameras. It's got to be this yeah, guy. Yeah. He had a star quality yeah. back then that I took note of and I pulled him aside and I said, I've got a character I'm working on called Machete. This was in 1994. Yeah. And I want you to play him someday. Yeah. So that was like 20 years in advance. Really? And um, we, I kept putting him in movie after movie. Where'd you He's meet him? The 10 or 11 movies. You just met just him? in on... casting for Desperado. Really? Because like you know, we shot around here Mm-hmm. And a man, oh, on no, the street. you can't walk down the street with him. Yeah, they're, they're, people would come out of windows. Machete! Yeah. machete, and they call him Machete. Yeah, and he's been in over two hundred movies, but he'll go from now on. He's Machete. Well, he loves it. Oh, he loves it. Yeah. That's, it was so that's how definitive that character was for him, and that he was the lead and the star. And he, you know, when I met him, he had just worked in Heat, where you know De Niro puts a bullet in his head. He's one of his guys. By the time we finish with him, he's a machete. De Niro's his co-star. So yeah. it's really cool to see his evolution as an actor, as a star, as a personality, yeah. as an iconic image. Um, well, what do you think, like, in, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not harping on this, but it seems to me that, like, in, like, in, in, there is a different audience in the Latino community. They, they appeal to him differently. Right. In a way. Yeah. You know, they, it's almost like a superhero. It's like totally. a, a Latino superhero. Totally. That was the idea is I wanted to see a Mexican superhero. <laughs> I wanted to see like a James Bond, but he yeah. was Mexican. Right. I wanted to people to, when I would walk out of a John Woo movie, you know, in college. Sure. I'd come out and I would say, I want to be the Chinese guy. Yeah. It had nothing to do with race. It had to right. Be, this is a heroic killer right. um, character. Yeah. This guy's awesome. I want to be this guy. I want to model myself after this person. So I wanted to do that for Hispanic audiences. Yeah. Give them heroes like the Spy Kids or Machete. It's funny is that Danny's actually in Spy Kids as Machete before we did Machete. He's called Uncle Machete. So he's in this weird double world where he's in a kid-friendly film as Machete, and then he's in the R-rated Machete world. Um, there's just not enough Machete to go around. <laughs> but um, well, you can create. You've created this whole universe, a whole universe yeah. of cross pollinates. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, it was really exciting just to see him step into that and put him in movie after movie to build up sort of his recognizability in these films so that we could finally get around. And it, and it was help it happen in the most organic way. When we did Grindhouse, we wanted to do those fake trailers. Yeah. I thought, well, you know, let's do a fake trailer for that movie we always talked about since Desperado and never did. Let's do, at least get it out of our system. Let's do a machete trailer. Yeah, trailer. I, that was amazing. Awesome. That was, yeah. Shot the trailer. Yeah. And people loved it so much they would chase us down all the time. Danny too. Like, when's that movie coming out? 
So five years, <laughs> la- five years later, yeah. we went and made a movie. Yeah. <laughs> and I used every shot that I had in that trailer. Yeah. I worked it in somehow. Yeah. Because I was just made that part of the creative process. Like, I'm going to force myself to figure out how to reverse engineer this movie honor the trailer all, every shot of that thing and 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 that well that's that, that's hilarious so you made good on it make you, good you, on like it, it was yeah. just the trailer was the thing but then when you had to make the movie you're like you gotta honor the trailer you gotta honor the trailer yes yeah. how bizarre is that yeah <laughs> and how did uh, when with sin city you know i actually um I know I'm, I know I make it about me sometimes, but I, I auditioned for the second scene. Yeah, which part, I was trying to remember which part you, you were going to play. The the rich guy. That was uh, we ended up using. You were actually a really terrific actor for that role, and um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't feel yeah, too hurt. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't too bad. We got to find <laughs> something. It wasn't it wouldn't have been the right fit for you. It wasn't a, it wouldn't have taken advantage of what you can do the way I would like yeah, to yeah. get somebody if I bring him in. So what was the what was the relationship with uh, with Miller on those things? Like you know how what what made you make those movies? Um, I was a huge fan of his books in City. I, I would collect it since it came out in '92. So I, I was collecting it for ten years straight. And it was one of those that I would go into the comic book store and I would look for a couple things and I would look for a new Sin City. And yeah. there wouldn't be one. I would buy a collection. I'd go home and go, oh, I've already got three copies. Of this. <laughs> yeah. And I never put together that I should make a film of it because. You'd have to do it visually like the book, which right. wasn't, wasn't possible. But then in 2003, I did Spike It's 3D, which was the first like big green screen yeah. movie. And I looked at the books again. I thought, oh my God, I know how to do this now. If I do it on a green screen, I can make it look like the book. So I did a little test. It looked crazy. So I took it to Frank Miller, met him, showed it to him, and we were shooting it within three months. It was the fastest any movie had ever come together. Because his books, he had already drawn them, he'd already written them, so I just shot out of the book. Just honor the storyboards. Honor the story. I just wanted to see this book's move. I knew him yeah, so well. Right. I thought, man, this is it's visual storytelling mm-hmm. in a way that no one tells in movies, but it's being done on paper. Why don't we just make the paper move? If we do that, I think we'll have something that's really unique that should still work. Instead yeah. of adapting it to a movie, let's take the movies and technology and adapt it to his book. So it was a it was fun. I made him come direct with me. And that was he of, knew it. Yeah, and that was like the first that it actually worked in the way that like, because you remember Dick Tracy, you know, with Warren Beatty, right. that they tried to do it with colors and with sets and with, you know, sort of uh, prosthetics, but it still didn't feel like the, the, the comic. I mean, it's right, a different right, right. comic. It's a different kind of comic. This but, one is so distinct in its visual style, even on paper. In black and white. That when you saw right? it. It just didn't look like film, right? Because right. when you would look even at the comic book, it didn't even look like a That's comic book. It looked like something else completely. He just was, and it made you um, realize how little information the brain needs to recognize a human face or an object. It was stripped down to just its its bare minimum. Well, that's the amazing thing about graphic novels is like you don't know why it, it's a magic that they're so compelling. Yeah. You know, because if you've got the brain for locking into them, you, you don't even think about it, but you're way in it. Yeah. And for me, the whole thing was, because I started as a cartoonist, I thought, I, I don't see the difference. I really think visual storytelling is the same whatever medium you're in. So m- traditionally, Hollywood take that book and go, oh, this is an amazing book. Now let's go turn it into a movie. Let's strip it all down. <laughs> let's, right. Let's let's put it into the norm of what a, what a film would be like. Right. Instead of embracing it for what it was. So that's what, what the flip was about. And it was um, actors came aboard. They wanted to be in something that was that true to the art form. And we had a killer cast. And it was, that was the one where I was like, and most of these are like that. You know, Grindhouse was the same way, Sin City the same way. Where you go, I don't know if anyone's going to come see this. Yeah. You know, but you don't really care. You're making it not very expensively. It's like, they'll, they'll f- discover it later on Blu-ray or DVD. That's fine for me. I just really feel like I have to make this film. 
and Sin City for sure no one's going to show up I mean they're going to see the trailer they're going to go okay what it's is black it? and white it's an anthology it's all voiceover all three things you're not supposed to do right off the bat and it was a big success yeah. it was really uh, it was really cool when that happened and no one had ever seen anything like it though no one had seen anything like it yeah so when you started doing this green, st- green screen stuff so you were a pioneer in that as well well because um, and I learned this from I knew George Lucas and um he had said the same thing. He said, uh, it's a good thing you're in Austin. Stay in Austin. That's why I'm in Marin County. When you live outside of the box, yeah. you're just automatically going to think outside of the box. You're going to just stumble upon right. innovations and you'll rethink everything. And I was down there going, why are we shooting on film anymore? Let's start shooting digital. Yeah. When George showed me those first digital cameras, I went, man, I'm going to shoot digital. You went out, what? He so shoot, from 2001, he, he had on, you over? shooting digital. I was there using his mix stage oh. until around 2001. By 2002, I had put in my own mix stage in my garage. I still mix all my movies in, my in your garage. garage. <laughs> yeah, that's why I love that we're in your house because yeah. <laughs> I do everything from my house. I mean, right there, do the editing there, I do the scores for the film. It's better, right? House. Oh, it's the best. You cook you too, a lot of right? Yeah, it's being creative all the yeah. time. There's yeah. no separation of right. work and play. So and, he um, turned you on to the turned me on to the digital camera, and I started just putting it through the paces to see what it could do. And right away, I thought, "Wow, we can shoot on green screen." You know what? I bet we could do three D. And I did the first digital three D movie. It was actually Spy Kids three D. That was the first that started that whole three D. Really? Yeah, it was the biggest of the Spy Kids. But there was no part of you because I've talked. Who did I talk to the other day? Vince Gilligan. You know, there's no, you know, given your sort of uh, respect mm-hmm. for for film. You know, even even watching you know Quentin's you know uh, his uh, his cut of uh, of the good, the bad, and the ugly, there was no weird sort of like uh, the film. Is- Don't like to be a slave to tradition. That's the worst thing that can happen. Is that when you start confusing the me- the you know the technique or the medium with the art form? Yeah, medium is not the art form. Right. Filmmaking, storytelling, visually is the manipulation of images. Right. Whether you use film or video or right. paper, right? It shouldn't really matter what you're using, but you don't want to be slave to one of them. Right. Especially when it's really holding you back from being able to create stuff that you would never see before. Right. Like digital 3D or Sin City. Yeah. Those would not be possible the other way. Right. So you're automatically stepping into a whole other world that you want to get into. And if I wanted to make, I wanted to make Grindhouse look like an old film, I didn't go shoot on a film camera. Yeah. I shot it on digital and I put so much distress and grain and splices that it looks like film. And Quentin said, no, no, no I'm going to shoot mine, my, my story. I'm going to go and shoot on film. I said, okay, you can, but I tell you, mine's going to look more like film than yours. <laughs> sure it did? As much as he tried to scratch it, go look at him. His looks like it's digital compared to mine. Mine looks like an old film print and it was shot on digital. Because you'd put all that, you can put all that in a post. You yeah. You have to shoot it with the thing. And it made it more economical to shoot. It was faster to shoot. You could try more things. Every shot could be a digital shot at that point. Um, so it definitely wow. freed you up a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 so you don't you don't have any desire to shoot on film anymore. Um, because you don't see a point necessarily. No, really, yeah, you can make it look like film. Yeah, I don't really. You see don't the get point. you don't get you, you don't get hung up on the difference between uh, pixels and grain. People don't realize that's a technology too. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, it's just such. A, it doesn't grow on trees. You know, it's more organic. It doesn't grow on trees. Right. It's a technology. It's just such an old technology. You start to think that it's organic. It's nostalgic. It's it's more nostalgic and it's more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you yeah. really could get beyond that, and you could push. You get the digital cameras to look better and better with the film cameras. They're not going to get any better. The film stocks weren't any good anymore. The processing was terrible. It was just not being done well anymore. So, but I guess another question then is, is given the option to just let a camera run, the, the intensity of, of de- that, that originally defined your style, which was economy, is, is not necessary. So 
doesn't that add time onto the other side of it if you're shooting you know for hours to to find that one bit uh no you I mean you still know where it is i mean i'm i'm very much i don't even shoot i'll shoot one take yeah it'll be a long take with right. little mini takes within it right so you may go through the dialogue four or five times within that take and the microphone comes after me when i'm before i call cut i say i like the first part of take two and the third part of this and then when i'm editing oh they actually the assistant editor listens to that and he marks all of it yeah and um and they have it clipped as if i had cut it right you know but it, what happens and when you've got a big crew is that when you call cut suddenly the hair people come in the makeup people come in <laughs> the whole thing kind of dies in its energy so the reason you want to keep rolling is to keep the intensity it's right. different it's different right when you're right, by yourself right. and no one's going to come in and disturb the set Cutting would help preserve intensity. Right. Yeah. It's the opposite once you got a bunch of people in there. Oh, it makes you sense. You want to keep them all out of the yeah. frame. So yeah. It's like, oh, no, no, we just keep rolling. Yeah. Right. Let's so keep some, rolling. someone's not picking at hair and yeah, they're coming yeah. in and they're doing things that they think are important and you just you just suck the energy out of the room. You know, and then you got to start over. Right. You know, it's almost like you start over each take where this is like, let's just run through, we'll get there faster. The relationship with you and Frank in terms of you know the co directing thing, what, what was the story behind that? I really felt Frank was a co-director already. I mean, he was already... Because he did doing, all the artwork. Did the artwork, and he was directing his paper actors, getting right. amazing performances out yeah, of them. Yeah. So, man, I, I started as a cartoonist. I'm telling you, it's the same thing. You sit in there drawing, it's going to feel the same when you're on the set, except those characters are now going to come to ask you questions about their motivation, and you're right. going to die and go to heaven. Yeah. It's the best feeling in the world. Come, come with me. Do you want to direct any of them? He yeah. says, I always thought about maybe trying to direct Big Fat Kills. Oh, come do all of them with yeah. me. You're the one who's been to Sin City. I'm just going to be copying your stuff. You should yeah. be right there. I want to get it right. I'm yeah. calling it Frank Miller's Sin City for yeah. a reason. It's not Robert Rodriguez's Sin City. Right. Come direct it with me. So we're like, oh, gun ho. We're having so much fun. It's great having a collaborator like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, Some of you so respect. We felt like brothers yeah. right away. I mean, yeah. We just got along so great. And uh, yeah, a week before shooting, the Directors Guild called and says, you know, you can't have two directors on a movie. I'm like, really? What are you talking about? Yeah. It's against the rules. I'm like, I see two directors all the time. Yeah. I see two directors all the time, really. Oh, no, no. They were a director, they were a group before they joined the DJ, or they worked together once. Right. If if one of you produces and the other one directs this movie, the next film you can direct, co direct together because then you would have had a directing relationship. Who makes this stuff up? Right. Are you serious? So one of us was not going to be able to direct it. On in name. Yeah. They said you can direct, you can both direct if you want, but only one of them can. And it's, they're trying to preserve the, that there's only one director on the movie. Because some of the other guilds, you know, writers and producers, always like 20. Yeah. Oh yeah. (laughs) 20 names. By committee. So they, so you can understand why they want to like not have, you know, 50 directors. Right. And also because what if, you know, there's, Say like a Harvey Weinstein who goes to one of filmmaker and goes, "I'll make your movie, but you've got to make me a, a co-director." Yeah, right. Yeah, it's to protect against stuff like sure. that. Sure. And um, so I can understand, but that's clearly not what the case was. But so I had to basically just leave. Because <laughs> I asked Frank, I said, "Frank, how about you direct and I produce?" Yeah. Because that doesn't seem very fair. Yeah. So what would you do? He goes, "Well, my tombstone's going to say it's not play well with other kids." I said, "Oh, same here. <laughs> okay, I'll quit." <laughs> So I left the guild and then... Uh, and what happens when you leave the guild? Well, you know, there's all kinds of repercussions. You don't get a lot of residuals and money, like profits right. and stuff right. that normally would go through the guild and then right. come to you. It's kind of how they keep... So you're still out? Out. still out? Still out. And then uh, you won't get an award ever because that's the ones that 
you know the DGA awards. Yeah, yeah. Oh, right. Well, even again. You know, oh, really? Not that I'm down that track. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it wasn't. It's not like I was like, okay, now I won't get the nod. But I was. I didn't have that coming anytime in my future, so that was easy to give up. But um, uh, I so totally, you know, just wanted to support the artist, and I, and I kept it quiet. But somehow they must have leaked it to the press because it was out in the press that I had left, and it and uh, and it just turned out badly for them. They got they got bad press because of that because people th- sided with the supporting the artist and it was great for us because all the actors suddenly wanted to be part of this movie that was like really true to art actors are love that stuff yeah yeah you know? they want to be part oh, of this something. is the real deal yeah. oh yeah i'm yeah. going there Just put me on a plane i'm going to that set and it was uh it was really exciting so like when you say that though when you say like you're not the kind of guy that's going to get a nod or, or going to win awards and stuff i mean do you you really feel that way um i mean well you know, i mean i'm not that's not I'm not seeking out those kinds of films. Right. Those, well, you never know, but I mean, it wouldn't, it wouldn't really matter. I mean, I'm not, why I do what I do is always because of the fulfillment you get and working with creative people. And, yeah. and that's the, the best thing, you know, and I've gotten awards. I mean, I, I got so many awards for El Mariachi. I yeah. felt like that's it. I'm done. I don't have to, go, I don't have to seek the award thing anymore. <laughs> yeah. Now I can yeah. just go have fun, make movies and do cool stuff. Do you have a, do you, do you find, do you, is there a competitive spirit to fighting the the studio system? I mean, do you do you enjoy that 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 maverick sort of renegade role of of like you know fuck you? I just made this movie and and uh, look how good it did. Oh, you know what? Um, it's very satisfying when a movie that's not done at a studio does well because right. it's it's rare. It's hard because right. you know a studio's got a lot of, a lot of places that a lot can, of juice, a lot of juice. I mean, yeah. like the ones yeah, yeah. had to buy every ad that went out. Where if you're Fox, you can promoted on your television series and you can do you know right, you got right. all kinds of ways to get the word out. right so you're you're really at a disadvantage when you're an independent so when you have any kind of success it's an amazing success and it feels really good but re- mainly why i do it, it's not i mean not anything against studios at all it's just that and i learned this from george lucas i mean he you know he, he tried to make flash gordon but he couldn't get the rights yeah so he wrote Star Wars instead. Right. <laughs> so I always kind of adopted that philosophy. If, if a studio had a, a film that seemed like it might be interesting and they want me to direct it, well, I don't really want to go be a director for hire because then I'm working for them. It's their property. No yeah. How good I make it, they get all the benefit. I'd rather go spend the time inventing my own series. Right. You know, like the Desperado series or the Spy Kids series or the Machete series or the Sin City movies. You know, very few filmmakers actually make that many franchises right. on their own. It's because I stayed out of the studio system that came up with that because you had to. You had to just create your own properties, which is a lot more gratifying. So it's more about the gratification. And it's your own business and about, you have control. And you just have the control. And I don't need that much money to yeah. make it, obviously. If I made Mariachi being my first movie really taught me a lot. I'd rather have less movie and more less money and more freedom than more money. And they're suddenly, as they should be, panicking about how they're going to get their money back, saying, no, you have to cast this person. You have to do this. Right. It has to end like this. The girl can't die. Yeah, you know? yeah. The guy's got to, you know, be the hero by the end. You know, you can go against all of that because you're just doing what feels right for the movie because you're not spending very much. And if it's successful, it's a great success. If it's not, it didn't cost very much. You'll get your money back eventually anyway. <laughs> right. Win-win situation. So now, like, but now, like, you do, like, you, you have a, you're producing a lot. Right. Like you know, you have you you're overseeing a network, right? And and now yeah, I would imagine that your your role as producer is 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 out. It's surpassing your directing almost. Hmm, let me think. Yeah, I guess you could say that. 
sort of. I mean, like we're doing the Dust Till Dawns, and yeah. But last year, you know, you're directing all those ten. No, out of the ten episodes, I directed four of them, which yeah. is a lot in a season for yeah. a David director. Sure, who's also running the network. It was right. a lot of work. This year, uh, I directed two of them. I mean, I did the premiere episode and then the uh, season finale, which is bonkers. Um, and brought in a lot of filmmakers, you know, trying to cultivate new voices and new talent. So I'm not taking as many slots. What are these short uh, uh, teaching videos you do? Oh, my DVDs, I would do these 10 minute uh, film schools showing how I made the movie, but like in 10 minutes, I know people didn't have a long time to see a big making of, and it would show you just all the innovations that happened on that movie. So you could go do it too. Where can you get those? Those are uh, probably all on YouTube now, but they're usually on the DVDs. And then I started adding a cooking, 10 minute cooking schools because so many of my movies had recipes in them or, or food that were being featured. So, uh, so right. many people have come up and said, I watch how to make breakfast tacos and homemade tortillas from Sin City breakfast tacos. And, and it's, it's people, really good. People love food, man. <laughs> they love food. Well, because I realized that I would give this little 10 minute talk on how to make a movie, but anyone watching their living room is not going to go make a movie the next day. Yeah. But they can go in their kitchen and cook that thing you just showed them. Did you grow up with food all the yeah, time cooking? Yeah. Well, like my dad sold kids. cookware. Yeah, we, cook, we cooked every meal. We all had to know how to cook. And um, and I love it. It's, it's it's art you can eat. And you talked a lot about uh, cartooning. Like, you know, how much was was um, was that type of stuff, you know, the, the printed stuff, like how much effect as a young person did that have on you? Were you co- consumed with comics or art in that way? Art in that way. I mean, I loved music. I loved making movies. I loved, I didn't know what I was, I loved photography. I kind of picked filmmaking. It was, it was, it was a neck and neck between cartooning professionally yeah. and, and filmmaking. Because I had a daily cartoon strip at the UT paper, the same one that Chris Ware came out of. He's a yeah. prize winning I love that guy. That's great. He does the stuff. Billy, what the yeah, yeah. The Billy Corgan. Yeah. He he um he, most of the stuff that he first put out was actually his college work. That's uh-huh. how good it was. Yeah, um, it's so funny because you remind me more of S. Clay Wilson. <laughs> like your movies right. are like that's S. Clay yeah, Wilson, man. So yeah, I mean, I I would uh, I picked filmmaking because it kind of would all my favorite hobbies would fit under it. Like yeah. I could do the music, I could do the photography, I could do the writing, I could do the storyboards. It kind of was a an umbrella over all my favorite hobbies where cartooning would have just been drawing. But um, being able to visualize something, the best thing about drawing or even painting, yeah, especially drawing, is that you can take a blank piece of paper, put it down, right. and in 10 minutes you'll have something that didn't right. exist before. Yeah. The immediacy of being able to create something that quickly, it's yeah. so gratifying, and that could turn into, like my friend Kevin Eastman, he sat down, he drew something one night, laughed, and went the next morning, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Wait, that's got. I think that's got a ring to it. <laughs> you know, you can literally create yeah, a, a massive property yeah. from a pen and a paper. That's yeah. still so addictive to me. I've been getting back a lot into drawing because one of my kids wants to do that. Yeah, gra- come up with stories visually like that. Right. I said that's smart because it's you don't need any money. Yeah. You know, pen and paper. Yeah. And it's all it comes down to the, having a great idea. Just keep knocking those out. You'll come across. You know, crank out a hundred of those. You're gonna have ten great freaking how old is he he's 18 world by the ass he doesn't even know it yeah yeah <laughs> you know you think yeah. about that you go man if i could go back and do it i know now oh man what do you mean it sounds like he did all right i guess i did okay but <laughs> i didn't know what he knows <laughs> i think it's what's interesting though about you uh, unlike some of the other guys i talked about i don't talk to a lot of directors but there is a a, a, a very specific work ethic around you know, owning your own shit and making a living, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, which I think you earned as a kid, yeah. like this entrepreneurial spirit of this idea that like, you know, this is a product. Yeah. 
And yeah. I think it's very much in the blood, you know, because my dad was like that. All yeah. my brothers are like, they all own their own businesses, whether it's an insurance company or a pharmacy or real estate. No one could really work for someone else. I think right. there's just something in the personality that was in the gene pool that I, I don't want to work for anybody. I'd rather right. work for myself. Right. And you have a chance to be more successful like that. I used to go as a kid, see my dad's in entrepreneur magazines. Yeah. Laying around and look at those and go, wow, this guy put video game you know, consoles in a truck and drove it to malls and made money that way. You know, just seeing how yeah, people yeah. innovate their own job. Right. And I and I point that out to my kids. I go, look how busy I am. I'm so busy all the time and I'm not working for anyone. All these jobs that I'm doing yeah. are ones I've created for myself. I've created my own nightmare <laughs> in a way, but in a good way. I mean, you're keeping yourself so busy. Does it register with them? It does. They get it and they want to do that. They want to build that for themselves where they, you innovate your own your own job and you create yeah. your own path it's a very powerful thing to learn at a young age you know? yeah i think it is thanks for talking to me man absolutely man that was great he's intense robert rodriguez is intense and i don't even know where he had the time to sit down for an hour to talk to me to be quite honest with you i'm glad he did uh, what else? Go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF pod needs. Check the schedule. Get on the mailing list. All the posters are up with artists attributed, so you can buy those posters. Sorry, the books are gone. Uh, you can listen to the podcast there still as well. <laughs> okay? All right? And yeah, do do what you got to do, man. I, I yeah. Okay. Let me just tell you, when I was in high school, my best friend's name was David Bishop. Dave Bishop was a great guy. His dad owned a stereo store. And uh, he liked cars, but he's passed away. And when we were in high school, he was sort of this, he was sort of a guitar prodigy and he just didn't have the confidence to own it. Like he could effortlessly play beautiful things on a guitar. And he'd been playing since he was a kid and he had this sort of a completely natural knack for it. And when we were in high school, you know, I, 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 I've never been a, a great player, and I certainly wasn't uh, much of one then, but we used to play together. We had a band, and I think the band knew three songs, and we played out uh, once or twice the three songs. But Dave had this black Les Paul custom, and um, I just thought it was like just a professional guitar. It was not a guitar that I could have. And when I did this thing for Gibson and 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 instead of paying, you know, they, they offered the possibility of getting one. Uh, I asked for a, a black Les Paul custom and now I have one and I, and I think about Dave and I think that I'm not worthy of it, but I have one. And now I'm, I have it for you, uh, through the champ, through the little fucking monster. <laughs> Boomer lives!